This is an ABC podcast. This is The Conversation Hour with Rochelle Hunt on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. The legalisation of cannabis has been long debated both globally and locally. And here in Victoria, after a two-year state parliament inquiry into legalising cannabis, the Andrews government has settled on suggesting that they, in inverted commas, investigate the impacts of legalising cannabis for adult personal use in Victoria. So what does that actually mean? And those that were hoping for change can now not really see that happening in the foreseeable future in this state. But when we think about marijuana... What are we actually talking about? Do you think about the innocent natural drug of the 60s or do you think about the mass hothouse produced plants often laced with other chemicals that many experts say now lead to psychosis? Over the decades, we've learnt a lot about marijuana, haven't we? How it's used, how it's helping some people medically with prescribed cannabis. But then there's a huge amount of work that's being done into negative brain health as well. So what would legalisation look like? And what do we know about the long-term health effects of marijuana? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. What would the legalisation of cannabis look like? Let's go to Professor Dan Lubman, AM and Executive Clinical Director at Turning Point. Dan, you actually put a submission into this two-year-long inquiry. What did you make of the end result? Look, I think, first of all, it's you know it's fantastic that we're having this conversation. Um, we've got a policy that's been in place for you know, almost 100 years, and in that time... We've seen so many other policies be reviewed, whether we're talking about, um, you know, the illegality of same-sex marriages, homosexuality, suicide even. Uh, And so it's really, you know, important that we look at these policies that are so old and we ask, you know, based on what we know now, are they still fit for purpose? Are they supporting the community, helping the community, or are they causing more harm than good? When you say with what we know now, that's really huge, isn't it? Because we know a lot now. And so for many of us, when we think about marijuana or cannabis, we might sort of think about that so-called natural, innocent drug of the 60s. But then a lot of work has been done into brain health as well when we talk about marijuana. That's exactly right. I mean, we know so much more about... Um, the science, the neuroscience of, of of cannabis, how it affects the brain, how it affects mental health, who's who's most vulnerable. Uh, we also know about what's happening around the world. I mean, you know, we might be talking about what we should do in Victoria, but at the same time, we know that many countries across the world are decriminalising or even legalising cannabis. And when we've got evidence now about what is happening in those countries and in those different states. So it's important to put all that evidence together and say, well, what should we do? Dan, plenty of text messages came in. I want to read you two because they're really on both sides of the fence here. One that says, totally support legalisation of cannabis. It should be regulated and taxed so it would be safe and it would be a source of money for the government. It would be treated like alcohol. Get with the rest of the world, Australia, says Meredith. But then another says, any family with genetic mental illness knows that touching cannabis is like Russian roulette and it should never be legalised for anyone. Decriminalising it, 
yes, but legalising it, no. So it's very divided, the community. I guess let's start with the difference between decriminalisation and legalisation. Yeah, look, I think they're really... I mean, I mean, those statements really around what the debate is in the community. I mean, I think one of the problems at the moment is obviously with the uh, illicit nature of cannabis. So cannabis is an illegal drug. And what we know is, um, you know, most of the harms that we see associated with cannabis relate to the fact that it is illegal. So, yeah, it causes, you know, incredible harms to the community. Tens of thousands of Australians hold criminal records because they've the cannabis possession and use, and, and that imposes lifetime limitations on employment, careers, housing, travel, and other opportunities. So... Um, that's why there's been a push for thinking about decriminalising. That means the drug is still illegal, but that rather than charging people with criminal offences, that people are pushed more into the health system for treatment support around addressing issues to do with cannabis. So it's, it's really that diversion away from a criminal, uh, a criminal uh, way of approaching the issue in terms of what happens to people and, and a more of a, a diversion, which most of the states actually have in one way or another into their health system and other, other systems. Whereas legalisation is obviously making the, the drug completely legal, like alcohol and tobacco, and putting regulations in place where people couldn't freely buy it under those regulations. When we talk about get with the rest of the world, as Meredith says. You can look at the United States, but you can also look more locally here at the ACT. Have you been following that closely? Because there was a lot of debate, and rightly so, around what would happen if they decriminalised cannabis in the ACT. What, what have you gauged from that? Well, the thing to say here is that... Uh in the ACT, um, cannabis is decriminalised in the ACT, the Northern Territories in South Australia, for over three decades. So it's been decriminalised there for over 30 years. What's happened just recently in the ACT is that they've actually legalised it for personal use. So that's been the debate that's been happening there. And, and so you know, what we're seeing here is you know, dramatic changes in policy over decades in other jurisdictions. And that's where I think this, this inquiry has been really important for us to sort of look at what's happening across other states in Australia and across the world and to really, you know, look in depth around what is the best approach in terms of how we regulate and think about cannabis. In just a moment, we're going to look into the impacts on brain health by th- so- psychosis, but we'll also look into road trauma as well and, and some of the impacts. When we talk about legalisation and being able to grow it, to grow a plant for your own personal use, I guess the two there go hand in hand because some of the research that's been done into psychosis and cannabis use actually looks at what cannabis is laced with and some of the other drugs that maybe you don't realise that you're taking or just chemicals that you don't realise that you're inhaling. Do you think that if it was, if somebody wanted to smoke cannabis or use cannabis, that they could, if they could grow their own, that it would reduce that harm in any way? I guess knowing what you're taking? I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think the big problem with having a big illegal market is you, you don't know what you're getting. It's a complete lottery. And what we know, um, you know, by putting it into, the, in, into criminal hands, what happens is is that we have production of um, of these drugs that are much more highly potent because obviously they can make more money out of that. 
And so that's one of the issues that we see with legalization of the countries is that you can actually know exactly what's in the product and you can actually look at some of the some of the chemicals that you'll be talking about. So one of the psychoactive chemicals that creates the greatest harm, THC, we know that in countries that are going down that legalization route, they're actually mandating the levels of THC in, in the drugs that can be purchased mm. so that people know what they're actually purchasing. Just finally, Dan Lubman, the, the two-year state parliament inquiry pretty much ended up with the Victorian government saying that they will investigate the impacts of legalising cannabis for adult personal use in Victoria, which is, I would have thought, what a, a parliament, parliamentary inquiry was. Is that the equivalent of a parent saying, hmm, we'll see, which basically means no? Well, I think I think the issue is is that we've had a you know incredible amount of submissions to this inquiry and a really movement. I, I, you know, I think full recognition that that the drug needs to be decriminalised, and that's certainly what we're seeing in the community. We, I mean, most of the country, you know, over seventy eight percent of Australians support decriminalisation of cannabis, and we're seeing increasing numbers of Australians now supporting legalisation. You know, more Australians support legalisation than oppose it. And I think this is, you know, this is the tricky issue that we need now to work through. And I'm hoping that what comes out of this inquiry is that step in the right direction. This is, as I say, a policy that's been in place for a, almost 100 years. And we're slowly edging our way to revisiting what is the best approach moving forward. As always, Dan, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Professor Dan Lubman, AM, Executive Clinical Director at Turning Point. This text, an illegal plant grown in the ground, yet they have injection rooms. Grrr, the rest of the world, if the rest of the world just rolled a spliff all at the same time, then the world would be kicking back, laughing and eating chips. Peace, man, says this text. And another, I lost my brother to an overdose six years ago. He has mental health issues and he started out by smoking cannabis at about 15 years of age. The risk to mental health is very real in young people with less developed brains. But with cannabis being illegal, it's left uncontrolled. It's easier for kids to get into than it is to get into alcohol, says this particular text. Jan is in Paran. Jan, what did you want to say? Oh, hi. How are you? Well, what was your point? Well, um, the uh, the situation in Portugal where they decriminalised all drugs has has changed the, the whole society quite dramatically to the point where they, um, you know, the, the the police now spend time dealing uh, cat, catching dealers, not people that have very small quantities for their own use, and it, it becomes then a health issue and not. A criminal issue, and it takes all of this other stuff out of it. All this, you know, the policing and and stuff that that goes on, trying to deal with all the criminals that provide all this stuff. So you would support decriminalisation? Oh, absolutely. What yes. about legalisation? What about the idea of being able to grow your own plant for personal use? Well, you could you could um, dispense it all from chemists, you know, with a, with a doctor's um, prescription. So almost using it like you would medicinal cannabis, which is a very different thing that we're talking about. I'm sort of not going into that as much today. Jan, good on you. Great to hear from you as well. 
And a huge amount of work, though, has been done over the years into the impacts of cannabis use, and in particular long-term cannabis use and your brain. Professor Murat Yusil is a trained clinical neuropsychologist. Uh, he is a part of Brain Bank. He is the founding director there, as well as the leader of addiction and mental health program within Monash University's Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health. And for those that don't know Brain Park, it is a world-first neuroscience research clinic, and we'll get into some of the fascinating research uh, groups that are being run at the moment. Murat, welcome to the Conversation Hour. When we look at understanding the impacts of cannabis and the brain, how much work's being done in that area? I'd say about at least 20 years, Rochelle. We were one of the early adopters, uh, I guess you could say, of looking at the, the brain uh, the brain and mental health effects of cannabis uh, roughly 20 years ago. And we have learned a lot. In that time, I think, uh, I'd say on the one hand, we've learned a lot. On the other hand, we're still in our infancy. To give you an example, you know, we when we first started looking at if there were any harmful effects on the brain of cannabis use, we started at the very severe end. Um, so we recruited people who had been using for at least 10, sometimes 20 years, who were very much daily users and uh, inevitably we found that there were some brain harms in particular parts of the brain. Uh, There were cognitive harms and there were mental health issues but out of that research a lot of questions came up about. So for example one of the first things people would ask us is well can I reverse it if I stop? What if I use less? What if I use a different type of cannabis? Um, And so it opens up a lot of questions where the majority of the population are not daily users who have used for 10 to 20 years. Uh, you know, there are many types of users and we need to learn a lot more about that. The research into how the drug has changed over the years and, you know, when you maybe think pot, you know, oh, it's just smoking a joint or whatever it may be, mm. there's that sort of natural homegrown 60s image. But over mm. the years, it's, it's really changed. I just want to have a chat to Craig. He's in Brighton. Craig, what did you want to say? Uh, similar to that last comment um, that your guest made and, and yourself in terms of strength of, um, of cannabis in the last sort of 20 years. And, and that sort of thought about it, it, it is a plant in the ground um, versus the strength of cannabis, you know, really in the last 20 years is, is quite incredible. And as your guest <coughs> was saying, the amount, I guess, that people would smoke whether it's daily or regularly, um, can really probably affect yeah, people in all sorts of different ways. If you compared it to an alcohol use and that was maybe a Friday or a Saturday or more recreational and you were you know, probably using or smoking cannabis, however it's taken, on a, on a very you know, um, you know, controlled sort of way, not on, not on daily or every other day, um, there may not be so many issues, but as the speaker is saying, the, um, a lot of people, not a lot, but there is a, a certain number of people that might do it more regularly than yeah. drinking alcohol daily. Craig, you don't and, have to and, answer yeah. this if you don't want, but do you use cannabis? Oh, no. No, don't. I don't. So, how do no. you, so is it just anecdotally that people have been telling no, you it's been because, getting stronger? No, because many, many years ago, call it 20 years ago, uh, yeah, I, I, I did. Um, and, and I saw that change from uh, sort of the mid-90s to yeah. the early 2000s where, um, 
yeah, it, it just became it was it was quite alarming the difference. And I do relate it back to this is an interesting fact where there was bushfires in Sydney in the mid nineties, and it, following those huge bushfires, there was there seemed to be a big surge of hydroponic marijuana. Yeah. Okay. That's an interesting link there. But Craig in Brighton were at the fact that he thinks anyhow that it's got stronger over the years. Is mm. that something that you take into consideration when you're looking at the research that you're doing at Brain Park? Absolutely. Um, you know, there is evidence that uh, strength has increased, you know, up to 15% of the plant these days can be um, THC, which is a psychoactive ingredient that typically is associated with harm. And this is one of the big things, you know, we're, we're at the moment running one, uh, Australia's, one of Australia's first naturalistic studies uh, where we actually get the plant matter that people are smoking, they, they drop it off for us uh, three times over a period of six months and then we look at some of the, the brain and mental health and cognitive effects of the actual substance. With the We look at the profile, like how much cannabis is in there, uh, how much sorry THC is in there, how much cannabidiol is in there and we know that over the years the uh, amount of THC has gone up uh, like I said, to about 15%, and the amount of CBD, which is normally low anyway, uh, usually under 1%, but it's almost been uh, ex excreted completely out. And uh, what we're doing is we're working with the, the group around the Nimbin-Lismore area where we know that bushweed tends to have higher amount of CBD in it. And we're working with the population there where they will drop in their samples um, and then we'll do some very sophisticated analysis and then be able to say exactly what cannabinoids, of which there are hundreds, are associated with harm or even benefit mm -hmm. as well. And uh, this is very, very innovative because typically what we would do is we would just ask the person, you know, uh, how much are you using? When did you start? But we wouldn't know a lot about the type of use, um, the kind of cannabinoids that's in the substance. And we're hoping that um, if we do find that uh, cannabidiol uh, being in the plant, as is typically in bushweed, uh, may offer some harm minimization properties, both in terms of your brain and your mental health. We found some very early evidence of that in our earlier studies. And so this study will hopefully confirm that. And, you know, there's a potential to then uh, be able to potentially breed CBD back in. To it's an incredible, I mean, I think it's a, is it a world first, this particular study that you're doing? Uh, th there's more studies now starting to do this kind of uh, approach where in recognition of the fact that there are, you know, over 100 cannabis, cannabidiol pr um, components within cannabis, we are, um, I think our study is in the final stages, so we'll, we'll have some answers in the next few months, but it, it's definitely uh, mm. one of a few in the world. In terms of other studies, you've actually looked at being able to reverse some of the brain impacts from long-term cannabis use with exercise. That's right. So, I mean, uh, our group does a lot of it, uh, work in trying to find lifestyle and technology-based solutions for mental health. And we know that with uh, particular types of exercise, uh, we've sort of landed on this exercise that we can prescribe for 12 weeks, uh, centred around high-intensity interval training, but uh, prescribed very um, 
uh, over 12 weeks and it's, it tends to have beneficial effects for parts of your brain like your hippocampus, your learning and memory and your brain uh, and your mental health as well. And it's almost the, mm. it, it provides almost the opposite effects of the harms that cannabis can do. So we're exploring whether uh, administering this exercise regime to regular cannabis users can minimise or even reverse any harms that may be occurring. Mm. And one of the things we do in this study is we don't actually tell them to stop. We just say, look, uh, come in, we have something that's good for your brain, um, uh, see how you go. And inevitably we're finding that you know, taking that approach where not where we're not top down telling them to stop with a heavy hand, but saying offering them solutions um, in other ways is actually helping them reduce by themselves. What I find incredible is there's so many different fields of research being done now. We know in terms of pain management and medically prescribed cannabis, especially for those that are living with and being treated for cancer. There's a text here from Andy saying, the only thing that stops me going overboard with PTSD is a joint after a really mentally mm. hard day. It can still be detected 48 mm. hours in my system. It makes me feel like a criminal. Uh, that's mm. from Andy. Just finally, Morat, because we, we want to speak to some other people too about the impacts, I guess, of road trauma when it comes to cannabis use. What are we learning about psychosis and different types of cannabis that people are using? Look, I think the, the psychosis issue is very real. It's robustly in the literature that there is an association. Uh, we think that particularly if you've got some background vulnerability factors, whether that's trauma or some genetic liability, that cannabis can confound and accelerate this. Um, it is a small percentage of the population and I think this is where the kind of studies that we're doing where we're actually taking the cannabis from people and doing high-level analysis is useful because we want to be able to identify who those vulnerable people are uh, as early as possible and why this trigger is happening um, and we're not going to do that if we just ask them sort of with not very good measurement uh, we can't rely on people's memories and they don't know what exactly they're using so uh, this sort of approach will hopefully help that but in the context of driving you know that's a much broader bigger issue that affects so many more people. Murad it's fascinating the work that you're doing is is really incredible so thanks so much for your time we might touch base when that particular research group up in Nimbin comes to a close and, and see what comes out of it so thanks for your time. Thank you. Professor Morat Yusel is a trained clinical neuropsychologist. He's at Brain Park. Now, Brain Park is one of the world's first neuroscience research clinics, and you just heard of two of the different research groups that they're running at the moment. He's also from Monash University's Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health. This text, hi, Rish. I'm 52. I've smoked marijuana daily from the age of 16. I think I'm one of the lucky ones. I can still function fairly adequately, dot, 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 I think. That's from DBPS, not my real name. Legalisation, decriminalisation, very different. Anne's in Wonthaggy. Anne, what do you think? Oh, hi, Rochelle. Oh, look, I was always on board with it becoming legalised, but our daughter, who has just recently turned 23, has been um, highly addicted to marijuana for the last couple of years. And um, the impacts on her life have just been absolutely devastating. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I probably tend to think that I wouldn't want it legalised now, actually, seeing what's happened with her. Um, it's been incredibly difficult. And 
it was great to hear that there might be some sort of strategies in terms of reversing the damage that's been done to her brain and I'm sure that there has been a lot of damage. She seems like a different person in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, Anne. It must be stressful for you. Jump onto Brain Park's website. I hadn't heard of them until I started researching this story. Yeah. Uh, and it's really fascinating. So, so jump on and, and, and have a look. And I wish you all the best with your daughter. That's Anne. She's in Wonthaggy. Nicole Lee is an adjunct professor at the National Drug Research Institute. Nicole, you've kind of been living and breathing this particular research and the impacts of both short-term and long-term cannabis use on, on people's brains. I mean, and as we just heard from Anne in Wonthaggy, I guess it really depends on the individual's brain, doesn't it? Yeah, morning, Rochelle. Yes, it um, it. It does, as uh, Murat said, that there's a, often people will have a, a vulnerability and they're the ones that will go on to develop problems with it. But um, from a kind of public health perspective and a policy perspective, I guess that the large proportion of people um, who use cannabis on a recreational basis um, don't become dependent on it and actually don't um, have uh, significant problems at all and usually over time their use gets less and they eventually stop. The state parliament inquiry into legalising cannabis has basically kind of, it's almost been put on hold. Out of that two years, the local government has ended up saying, look, we'll investigate the impacts of legalising cannabis for adult personal use in Victoria. So it sort of feels like, as I said earlier with the parent, it's a we'll see type situation. Where do you sit in this debate, it, changes have been made globally. They've also been made in the ACT in the Northern Territory. Where do you sit with this debate on either legalisation or decriminalisation? Yeah, so I, I think that um, it's really important to distinguish between those two things. And we have a kind of, we already have a kind of de facto decriminalisation system in Australia, which is called um, police diversion. So uh, people are often um, diverted from uh, the police. Uh, system to treatment or to uh, assessment, um, and so that kind of acts as a as a um, type of decriminalisation, not um, not exactly, um, but it still puts them in contact with the criminal justice system. Um, so a decriminalisation model, um, there's lots of different models um, that are possible, but uh, a decriminalisation model means that um, that that the criminal um, component of um, cannabis being illegal is removed. So people still will come in contact with the criminal justice system, but they um, will, they often, they usually get a fine. So the thing that surprises a lot of people is that we've already had this in Australia, um, in the ACT, Northern Territory and South Australia for about 30 years. And it hasn't resulted in an increase in um, the use of cannabis in those states and in fact um, two of those states have the lowest cannabis use in Australia. Um, so decriminalisation in my view is a no-brainer and we should do that right away. It doesn't um, remove uh, the Ill illegality of cannabis but it does remove the criminal um, aspect of it. Um, and then the next step is, uh, is um, legalisation or re regulation really it's you know, the same way that um, alcohol is regulated and, and cigarettes are regulated, and that removes all of the penalties altogether. 
Just finally, there's a question here saying, please ask if there's been an increase of psychosis over the last 10 years. When we look at the types of cannabis that people are smoking and using in the line of work that you've done, Nicole, have you seen an increase in psychosis and related to cannabis? So it's a, it's a little hard to, um, to pinpoint that exactly. There has been... Um, there's data that suggests that there um, is possible increases. There's increases and decreases depending on how strong it is. And that's one of the benefits of regulation is that people will actually know what they're using and they can titrate and regulate their own um, dose so that they are less likely to become dependent and less likely to um, suffer the ill effects. So if you, you know, it's like alcohol, you know that if you buy a bottle of gin, then you've got 40% alcohol. And if you buy a bottle of wine, you've got 12% alcohol. Um, but we don't know, you know, if you're buying cannabis now illegally, you can't, you can't know that. It could be really strong or it could be um, very yeah. benign. Nicole, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, Rochelle. Nicole Lee, adjunct professor at the National Drug Research Institute. Chris is in Kuirup. Chris, welcome. What did you want to say? Uh, yes, um, cannabis has been linked to my schizophrenia, which I developed at age 32. I'm 55 years old now. I smoked cannabis for about one year, about twice a week when I was 18 years old. How did that link get made for you when there was such a, a big gap there, Chris? The psychiatrist um, did it when I went from his centre to get on benefits at, at age about 53. And did that surprise you? Oh, it didn't get linked at the start, yeah. but uh, he, he linked it, yeah. Chris, good on you. Thank you. Good to hear from you. Andrew Leiby is a forensic toxicologist who specialises in roadside workplace and drug testing. And Andrew, drug testing and roadside drug testing is something that we sort of just see happen, I guess, in the last decade or so. How frequent is it that somebody will be caught or tested and will be using cannabis and driving? Oh, well, good morning, Rochelle. Well, um, you know, it's 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 an issue certainly that's um, become quite a, uh, a problem in the United States with the various relax and relaxation of uh, restrictions over there. Sometimes it's complete, completely legalised in some states uh, and other states it's sort of a medicinal cannabis model. But certainly the amount of cannabis has been uh, much more widely available in the US. Um, there's certainly been an, uh, a, quite a significant increase in the amount of workplace detection of cannabis um, in the regulated industries over there, like airlines and nuclear power plants and those sorts of things. Um, and also some uh, changes in, in the, the mix of people coming into hospitals. So, so you know, increased consumption of cannabis by various mechanisms certainly doesn't have an impact to product in the workplace and also in terms of what we see coming into our hospital emergency, well, what they see coming into their hospital emergency departments. How does cannabis affect your driving and how you drive in the, the safety of both not only your life but others around you? Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, there's, there's a number of prescription drugs um, that can affect your driving. So I don't certainly, you know, we can't sort of say that cannabis is unique in the fact that it will affect your driving compared to other medications. And of course, we know about alcohol and driving. Um, but the main effect really for um, cannabis uh, in terms of driving safety is really your, your reaction time in complex situations. 
So, you know, you're not going to be swerving the car around. You're not necessarily going to be speeding and having trouble controlling the the speed of the vehicle, which is the sort of aspects we see from from alcohol consumption. But if you're in a complex situation, you know, like you need to change lanes and the the traffic light is changing from green to red and, you know, you've got uh, Mm. perhaps a a dog or a kid or something running onto the road, um, there's a number of studies that show how much slower you are to react. And, and that can be in the order of two to three times slower your reaction time in a complex situation compared to when you were driving not under the influence of cannabis. Peter's in the Otways. I think, Peter, you have something to say on this, don't you? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, like the, the latest type of scientific research coming from out of Lambeth um, Institute at Sydney University suggests that any type of impairment will last for three to ten hours, depending upon whether you've taken it, smoked it, or had it as an oil. I myself am a medicinal cannabis user, and I find I've been driving for 47 years. I've never had an accident. I'm a particularly safe driver. I used to even teach road safety. Um, I find myself not able to drive now because I had traces of THC in my system. Now, if I'd had traces of alcohol or heroin, or cocaine, or MDA, or ice, that could be fine. But just absolutely any trace whatsoever of THC, and I'm not allowed to drive. And now, that's for med- medicinal. Directly, yeah. It affects the community as well. Yeah. Good on you. Good to hear from you. I mean, when we're talking I'll, about medicinal cannabis, Andrew, where, where do you draw the line here? Well, it's, it's a good point, and I'm glad you caller raised it. So it, it's not quite true. You do have to have, in Victoria and in other states, you do have to have above a certain amount, a certain threshold, before you'll be detected as positive uh, on the roadside test, for example. And the other important aspect about medicinal cannabis is, uh, your caller mentioned THC, which is the psychoactive ingredient. That's tetrahydrocannabinol. That's the one that, that gives you the euphoria and the relaxation and is detected on the roadside, but not all medicinal cannabis contains that. Some can be something called cannabidiol. Um, and if you're taking cannabis or CBD or CBN, if you're taking that as an oil or a capsule, you won't test positive on the roadside. So, so it's quite a, an interesting mix. But, but yes, you do need to have above a certain threshold, uh, above five nanogram per milliliter to be detected as positive on the roadside. Yes, I like it. Given the sort of work that you do, the sort of knowledge and research that you have when it comes to this, where do you sit with the debate on legalisation or decriminalisation? Uh, well, I mean, I have my opinion as an individual, like everyone else. I think if you look at the um, aspect of cannabis as a drug, um, I can certainly say from a workplace safety and a roadside safety point of view, we have drugs which are legal, uh, like benzodiazepines, and uh, which are tranquilizers and sleeping tablets, uh, along with opiates, um, which is things like um, morphine and, and mm. some of those sort of drugs. Which are uh, all very, very strong yeah, drugs and, do, and can but, cause a lot of problems and pain for a lot of people. Well, and they do certainly have an effect on your driving performance. And they also have an effect on your ability to, say, drive a forklift or drive a truck. So, But they are fairly tightly regulated in safety-sensitive industries. You are tested for them. And if you're positive, then you need to have that discussion with your doctor and, and the company about how you're going to work safely. So, you know, th- there is a framework there for medicinal cannabis to be put into that um, framework. And, of course, we have alcohol, which is completely legal. But if you come to work and you're put on the breatho and you blow point away on the breath though in many companies you know that would be an extremely serious situation so 
so to a certain extent, from a scientific and, and pharmacodynamic point of view, we, we can put it into the same sort of category that we already have for some of these other safety-sensitive uh, drugs. Andrew, good on you. Thanks for your time. No worries. Andrew Levy is a forensic toxicologist specialising in roadside and workplace drug testing. David's called from Frankston. Hi, David. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. What did you want to say? I'd tell you my story. I'm an ex-policeman and me and my decided decided we're going to see how many drug-affected drivers we can catch on a night shift. And a night shift consists of 11 night from 11 at seven in the morning, but over those seven nights, we caught 22 drug-affected drivers. So in seven nights, 22 drug-affected 20 drivers. drug-affected drivers. Could you tell yeah. straight away? You know yeah, when you're driving well, behind someone, you're like, oh, something's yeah, going well, on in that a, car. They're a bit erratic, and yeah. you've got to ask yourself, what are people doing driving around at three and four in the morning if they're not going to work? So where do you sit as a former police officer when it comes to decriminalisation? So not legalisation, but decriminalisation. So it doesn't affect no, somebody's well, record. You've got, you, you got to draw the line, the line somewhere in the, in, the, in the sand. But, you know, there's drug-affected drivers driving around. They don't know which way they're going. They're going down the roads on the wrong side of the road in the wrong direction, you know. That's what's going to happen. And it's out of control now. But we uh, reported it to the hierarchy, but the hierarchy are only interested in good news stories. Good to hear from you as well. Let's end today's conversation with James. James is in Ivanhoe. Hi, James. If you're quick, what did you want to say? Hey, I'll keep it brief. Um, the way that we conceptualise this discussion, to me, is, is, is wrong. If we focus too much on the social harm, there's always going to be discussion we can have with respect to things like driving, with respect to things like brain development, and, and they're valid. But if we were to shine the light on social good for a brief moment... It, cannabis does do a lot of good. First, the alternative is better than alcohol. The literature is clear on this. That's not even a debate. So it's not like people are going to do cannabis or nothing. They'll do cannabis or alcohol or opiates or something else. Further for me personally, um, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for cannabis. I can say that with certainty. I had chronic pain for the longest time. Stress elevated cortisol levels throughout my law degree. And cannabis is what got me through. Um, I'm not saying, sorry, very briefly, I'm not no, saying that yeah. cannabis doesn't have problems. It of does. Course. Of yeah. course. But the bottom line is it can do a lot of good for a lot of people, chronic pain, anxiety, depression, insomnia. And that's, all, that's more- what medically, I guess, prescribed uh, cannabis is there for. And you can, you can speak to your GP about that. James, good to hear from you as well. But that's it for the Conversation Hour today. If you need some listening as you're walking over the weekend, subscribe to the Conversation Hour podcast. Go to the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And that way you'll have something to listen to no matter what the topic. I dare say we have covered it in some way. Until then, have a safe weekend and we'll speak to you on Monday.